This episode is brought to you by our friends at Thompson Hines. Thompson Hines Quick Launch helps emerging startups get their initial team members onboarded the right way with all the appropriate legal documentation for a fixed, reasonable cost. Every dollar counts for a startup and making sure that all your team and equity compensation matters are handled appropriately shouldn't be dictated by costs. With the Thompson Hine Quick Launch Team and Equity Matters Bundle, we ensure that you have employee offer letters, NDAs, intellectual property assignments, independent contractor agreements, and advisory board participation agreements. Visit thquicklaunch.com today and get your company and your team set up right. 614 Startups Nation, welcome to another episode of the 614 Startups Podcast. My name is Elio Harmon, and I have a very special guest, my guy, Jonathan. Puma of Loop. Jonathan, welcome to the show, man. Elio, thanks so much, man. Grateful to be chatting with you. Long time coming. Yes, uh, sir. I think we got connected. Was it Fro? Fro sent out a note about the podcast, and he he buried the lead with with some great copy for the for the company too. But uh, but glad we got both going on. Yeah, Fro's a great guy. Uh, obviously, doing great things over at Bean. Uh, and one of the great things that I love about Columbus is that. You know, we're a very, very open city, still a relatively young ecosystem, startups wise, and everybody kind of knows each other and Fro's willingness to connect us. And then he said, you know, the, the way he he positioned it is like, I got two people you need to talk to. One of them is Jonathan. He's a really great guy. Reach out to him. He's going to give you an opportunity. He's going to want to hear you out. And you guys were extremely nice. Uh, this was right as we were launching Entrepreneur's Brew which is our uh, coffee business that I'm a founder in. And you guys subscribed, you were receiving the coffee and then COVID-19 hit and all of that was put on hold because nobody's in offices anymore. And that's what we were essentially doing. That was our business model. We're delivering great coffee to startups. So thank you so much, man. Not only are you a a follower of the podcast, you're also a supporter of Entrepreneurs Brew. So very, very grateful. Yes, sir. Yeah, no, Fro's amazing. And um, yeah, it's just great to get to plug in and, and, and share and learn and, and kind of contribute to just the community that we're, that we're building here and that you're, you're driving to, to build too. So yeah, anything I can do to, to support that and, and love just getting to have a good conversation too. Well, straight out of the box, I got to compliment you guys because I'm a brand guy. I'm marketing first, everything next. And talk about getting a name that's right on the nose loop right but before we get the value proposition for loop we got to get to know you first so people who don't know you give us a bit of your backstory and how you came to be the founder of loop or or ceo yeah, I take very little credit for the name or stuff like that or or the the brand but um it's a, it can be a long story so I'll, I'll connect a couple dots quickly and then and then get into the meat of it uh so dynamic is a local startup here in columbus uh founded by matt dopkiss and, and bobby whitman um they have done great stuff. They uh, became part of Willow Tree apps uh, last year. And back in 2010, they took a shot on me uh, as an extern or an intern. Uh, I was out of college, uh, started working with them for 10 bucks an hour because um, I wanted to get in di- into digital, uh, into into strategy, into tech, whatever you want to call it. Three and a half years later, left, left Dynamit, um, which could be a whole podcast in and of, it, of itself, but left Dynamit to go to Homage and run Homage's e-commerce. That was 2013. So about three years later, I replatformed us to Shopify Plus and just really serendipitously was like the seventh or eighth brand to launch on Shopify Plus. Uh, it was before they were a public company. It was before they were worth $100 billion. 
It was before Shopify Plus was even named Shopify Plus. We bought it as Shopify Enterprise. A year after launching on Shopify, kind of saw an opportunity to take my consulting background from Dynamit and my e-commerce background from Homage and bring it together in an e-commerce consultancy. That was a company called Rocket Code that I founded. We had the great fortune of, of Chubby Shorts being our first client. Chubby's was an admirer of Homage and reached out to Shopify to ask who launched Homage. Uh, they put them in touch with me. And we started working with Chubby's then in 2014. In 2015, then Chubby's VP of Finance, Dave Wardell, reached out to me. I like vividly remember the phone call. He was on a train and he was talking to me about his returns problem. You know, I put on my consultant hat and asked a bunch of questions. And we were in like a thousand square foot office in, in Grandview and he asked all these questions. And they had their customer service reps going through the front end of the website and placing exchange orders for customers. And you know, messing with their Google Analytics and messing with their conversion rate and messing with their revenue and then canceling orders on the back end. And it was this big, cumbersome manual process before Returnly, before Narvar, before our space even existed, before returns were a problem people were tackling. And I sat down with Dustin, who's on our team now, and, and one of our engineers, Matt, at the time, and just looked at like Shopify's APIs. And we're like, there's got to be a better way to solve this. Intendedly, we kind of built what would eventually become Loop in 2015. And like most tech entrepreneurs, we, we were really, you know, it's ironic because we were trying to build software and uh, it took a year for that software to slap us in the face and for it to say, hey, this is the software you've been trying to build. Because for a while, we were trying to sell that as a project to win more accounts for our services business. And, you know, 2016, we ended up at, at we were out in San Francisco doing some annual planning with Chubby's and decided that we should form a joint venture. So we formed a joint venture that Chubby's owned half of, Rocket Code owned half of, and we are going to bring to market. Fast forward uh, about a year, and the way I tell the story is running one business is hard enough. I certainly wasn't good enough to run two, so I couldn't run our returns business and Rocket Code at the same time. And serendipitously, uh, Corbett Morgan, who's now business partner and, and our chief product officer and a, and a great friend and, and my brother, he called me up and he wanted to get together at, at Northstar to talk about an idea he had. And he had just left Klarna where he was working on Home Try-On uh, in Sweden, came back to Ohio, showed me a pitch deck for Home Try-On. And I was like, uh, I probably remember it more elegantly than it was, but I kind of said like, hey, Corb, this is great, but you can't do Home Try-On without returns. And we have this returns app and it doesn't have a name and it's not a product yet. And we have a small team and it's got great like fit, but we need a product-oriented leader and I can't run it. And so I think that day he came with me to our office, uh, joined like a sales call and was like, holy crap, this thing's, this thing's awesome. And fast forward again, and like late 2017, he's running that as CEO. I'm running Rocket Code, helped raise kind of the initial angel round of investment to, to get it started. I went on to run Rocket Code and sold it to Brand Value Accelerator, BVA Commerce, largest Shopify agency in the space based out of San Diego and one of the first five or six that started right around the time Rocket Code did. There was just great camaraderie in that space, and, and we sort of joined together. I stepped into that very fortunately as the CEO. We sold about a year later, almost exactly a year later, to a, a small family office out of upstate New York. And all that time, I was serving on the board of Loop. And meanwhile, Loop was scaling, uh, raising their next round of funding, turning the thing that was pre-product into product, putting a team in place, uh, and starting to build. And then about a year later in 2019... Um, I was no longer CEO of BBA and was serving as chief evangelist and was at a board meeting for Loop and just had an opportunity uh, at the board meeting to share. And, and we all kind of paused. And yeah, when the team found out that I was no longer responsible for the business, wanted to find a way to get me back in. So Corbin and I spent like the next three or so months kind of figuring that out. 
I had a little bit of an employment contract I had to work out. So it was kind of part-time in loop from May to August of last year and then full-time from August forward and uh, and moved into the CEO role in, in February of this year. So there's a lot more to the story from that. But part of the way I talk about it in summary is I can take credit for founding the product, maybe, but I certainly can't take credit for founding the business. Um, there's a big difference between a product and a business. And Corbett and Brandon and Chris and Steve and Joe and Diana all of whom are still with the business, those guys took the thing that was like pre-product and turned it into a business that I had the good fortune of being able to, to step back into after they had done that. And uh, it's, it's just been a ton of fun since. There are like three or four different podcasts in that. <laughs> so I get what you're saying about it being a story that can get a little bit long, but I think all valuable information. Now, I love these kind of origin stories where you start off as an intern at Dynamit and between 2010 and 2013, something must have happened to you to be able to go over to a brand like Homage and run their e-commerce, right? So who was Jonathan 2010? And then what happened to you over that internship where you were bold enough to say, yeah, this is something I'm going to take on for a brand like Homage and I'm going to transform their e-commerce? Yeah, I mean, a bunch of good fortune. First and foremost, Willow Tree, formerly known as Dynamit, um, builds professionals and teaches hard work and accountability better than, like, I couldn't have had a better three years to spend anywhere. I feel like I went in on a trajectory like this and came out on, on some trajectory altogether. And that's, that's because there are no harder working and smarter and more accountable people on the planet than Matt and Bobby. And they've continue to build great people and just churn out talent. And their alumni network is Dynamics alumni network and what they've gone on to do could be a, another podcast in, in and of itself. But they're great. I think a little bit of like ignorance, arrogance, and, and some support from my wife are sort of how I got there. So like the ignorance was probably some cliche, but you know, you, you never knew more than you thought you knew at 25 or, or something like that. So I uh, just thought I knew everything. And now, you know, 10 years later, realize I knew nothing and still know nothing and hopefully continue to peel back a few more layers. But um, the homage story was just serendipitously, I was buying so much stuff from homage and they were so small at the time. And if you know, Ryan Vessler, he's an awesome and eclectic founder. And he was at the time watching every order confirmation email that came in. And we were actually riding Pelotonia summer 2013 to Athens. And he saw my name on my bib and rode up next to me. And then we ended up riding into Athens in the rain together. Uh, and my wife and I tried, my wife and I gave him a ride back. We weren't even married yet. We rode back to Columbus together. Uh, we gave him a ride home, started a friendship. And he, about a year later, kind of started trying to recruit me. And it just took him two years to wear me down to come over. And I uh, got the good fortune of doing that. And then I think with starting Rocket Code and taking that leap, uh, one, I had a great business partner. His name's Chris Bowman. Uh, he's a friend of mine down in Cincinnati. And I don't think I'd have taken the leap without having a partner because founding a company alone is is scary, uh, I think, the first time. But uh, beyond that, after leaving Dynamit and then kind of starting to talk about leaving Homage, my wife certainly probably remember it more elegantly than it was at the time, too. But I like almost remember her saying, like, hey, I'm tired of hearing about you thinking you can do this stuff. If you think you can do it, just go do it. And so she sort of gave me the, the kick I needed to, to kind of cross that threshold into, into entrepreneurship, which is, yeah, something I'm super grateful for. And in a way, I get to repay that to her right now because she's, she's launching a business and her own uh, direct-to-consumer brand right now. So it's, it's neat to see that come kind of full circle. 
Yeah, man. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's great to have a good woman in your life. You know, my wife, after hearing me multiple times that I thought I was funny, set me up to do open mic night <laughs> on my birthday, invited my friends and I didn't know about it. And I had to go up on stage and do stand up oh unexpectedly. So at least mine was only, you know, three, maybe four <laughs> minutes. You were challenged to start a company, right? That's a, another level of commitment. I could have bombed that night. I did okay. But I mean, that's a, another level, right? Leave everything <laughs> behind and start a company. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after this message from our sponsor. Notice is a fast-growing smart glass technology startup headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. Notice True Tint technology gives you the ability to change the tint, color, and temperature characteristics of windows, which helps to make buildings more energy efficient and the inside of your car more comfortable. Ahead of a Series A funding round, Notice is investing heavily in Columbus by building its commercialization, systems engineering, and sales teams here. And the company plans to build a manufacturing facility in 2020 as they ramp up production and sales of True Tint to glass manufacturers across North America. To learn more about Notice, explore investment opportunities, and browse their job openings in advanced materials research, systems engineering, sales, and manufacturing, visit noticecorp.com. I want to pivot a little bit before we get deep into the loop story, which is I just started following you on Twitter. You are a prolific tweeter, but you're not just heads down tweeting about things that only have to do with you or maybe even your company. You are tweeting about current events that are happening in our world, and you're, you're taking a stand. There's no way to go on your Twitter feed and scroll down and not understand where you are as a person about current events. Why do you use that platform to talk about things that are current and, you know, the stands that you take, where, where is that coming from? Is that something that you've always been about your entire life? Or is it because, I mean, 2020 is just revealing <laughs> that you can't stand on the sidelines anymore about certain things. Where do you think that comes from for you? Yeah. Um, thank you for asking. I, I feel like I could talk about this stuff forever. So I'll, I'll try to be reasonably concise. Um, about a year ago, my mom moved down to Columbus from Youngstown, where I grew up. And in doing so, she's cleaning out her house and, and moving. And, and she sent me this picture of this list of dreams that I had in third grade. Maybe I'll give it to you and you can post it in the resources of the episode. But the stuff that I had the good fortune of dreaming about because of the way that I was told I mattered my whole life and the way that I was told I could do anything I wanted and like the, the things on my bucket list at 12 years old, I was just astounded that I, I had the good fortune of, of thinking of being able to do stuff like that. And then you know, there's a capitalist side to running a company, to starting your own business. I certainly like a lot of that, but but at the end of the day, like none of that's purpose. And I think that part of the responsibility, obligation, opportunity, whatever you want to call it, that I that I have is to use. You know, the company is almost nothing more than a platform, and a platform to do a couple of things. One, for me to learn and grow as a human, as a leader, uh, as a professional. Two, to give that to the people in our company and give them a platform to learn and grow. Three is to provide for my family. And then I think fourth, and perhaps the most important, is to create a little sliver of the world that we believe should exist and prove that you can 
do all of those things right. And, and we're still screwing up a, a bunch of stuff and need to get a lot better, but do those things right and make money and, and do these things. And, you know, then when I look at where we're at and the good fortune of running the company, I'll see if I can like tiptoe out onto a, an interesting line. I feel an obligation to speak up um, because, because of my privilege and because I've at least seen some of the things that I'm sure you and others have experienced firsthand. I've, I've at least seen some of that secondhand. I've been pulled over with some black friends in the car and I've been driving and after checking my license, they've been pulled out of the car and they've been searched. And I've seen this stuff at least secondhand to have some, some empathy. And I think if I, if I think about that and, and the compassion, and then there's, um, you know, hopefully for those of us that are privileged like me to show that it's okay to step out and talk about things. And we live in this weird time where like cancel culture exists and progressive left, I'd say, which, and I, I, I certainly lean left. I'm probably a left centrist, but there's sort of this narrative that's like, Hey, change your mind. But if you ever say the wrong thing, or if you ever said the wrong thing in your life, we're going to cancel you too. And I guess I kind of believe that everybody is worthy of love, not just other people who also believe that everybody is worthy of love. And I think that dialogue is the path to unity and without unity, we're just going to keep dividing each other. And so I'm trying to use, it's a long-winded way of getting back to, you know, why do I use that platform to just say things that I believe and be willing to engage and hopefully show others who maybe also have no idea what they're talking about. Kind of like, I feel like I have no idea what I'm talking about. And if I were pressed on something, my logic would be paper thin, or I don't have the background or life experience to back it up that we still should be talking. And so I think without dialogue, nothing's going to get solved. And if one side sits and condemns the other and the other side sits and condemns the other, we're just going to divide ourselves further apart. And we've got to start reconciliation at a macro and a micro level. And I just hope that I am kind of creating a little bit of safety for others to to start to do the same, because I think we need that bridge to reconciliation. Yeah. And, it, and it's it's the double-edged sword of the internet. So a lot of Absolutely. information that was once when somebody who had a real experience, like if you were in a car, like you described with your friends and there wasn't body cam back then, let's assume there's no body cam video anywhere. And you were to explain that. Now, to certain people, they'd be like, well, duh. <laughs> like, are you surprised? People have been trying to yeah. tell you that that's what happens at traffic stops. And for you, maybe it was the first experience. Then you'll go explain it to somebody else. And they'll be like, well, what were they doing? Did it smell like weed yeah, in the car? They, yeah, they had to be doing something. Correct. The cop would never but just pull somebody out of the car. Were they acting suspicious? Was there an APB for the people in your car and they were just pulling them out to make sure they weren't? The, so, but that was before everything for was sure. Video. So now video is everywhere. And so, what was once very prevalent, but maybe not seen, feels like it's even more prevalent now. But the only difference is that there's video of it. 100%. Uh, and to your point, for people who always knew this was going on, in some ways, they feel vindicated, finally. And for the people who didn't think this was going on, some of them have said, oh, okay, now I understand. However, there's another group of people who are experiencing cognitive dissonance. And to the point that you're trying to make is, when someone is in cognitive dissonance, 
sometimes what they say and they might even lash out because their belief systems are being changed in real time. And sometimes it feels like an identity is being ripped away from someone, like all their value systems are being challenged from all sides. And so to, to, to your point, as people in the startup world, and by virtue of starting a company, you are a leader and you set the tone for the values of your organization. How has your positions and what you're seeing as somebody who, like you said, leans in one direction politically, you speak out because it's the right thing to do. How does that translate now into real action within Loop as a company? Yeah, great, great question. The cognitive dissonance and all that stated far, far better than, than I could have. So thank you for, for doing that. So I think it's a bunch of things. And that's even a little bit of this fear on my side to speak up like, hey, how do I actually make sure we're taking action and doing something different and not just virtue signaling so that I can go to sleep at night feeling like I said right things or, or something, but we actually, we actually change something. And so, you know, we've got a document that's in draft, but Kelly Nestor is our, our director of talent and she's working on putting a program in place. Well, the way we're talking about it is representation and belonging. And it's, it's a really well-documented program, but we're basically sharing externally and internally for transparency and accountability sake. And the way we think about yeah, representation and belonging. So representation is quantitative and based on what the people in our company look like and how we measure what success looks like. And then belonging is qualitative and is based on feedback that we capture in a, in a semi-annual kind of employee engagement type survey. And we're still working on getting it in place. Um, Kelly would be upset if I only talked about it in hiring practices because that changes your representation, but that doesn't change your belonging. So there's a lot that we've got to do with, with our policies and our holiday calendar and our company meetings and, and our you know, recognition of different religions and all sorts of things to make sure that it's not just representation, but that people do feel safe and like they belong and like they are a part of and welcomed into the community. So the first thing you know, is, is starting to change our hiring practices. And I'll, I'll probably slightly misquote what we're doing, but there are a lot of ways we can measure whether or not we're doing a good job. What we're trying to use is within a standard deviation of what Columbus looks like, and I'll miss Columbus a little bit, but it's 49% male, 51% female, something, I should pull up the stats so I don't misquote it, but it's something like 54% white, 36% black, 20, uh, that might be off 16, uh, I'll, I'll share the metrics. And we're trying to say, hey, we don't look like this today. Candidly, we, we have no, a big awakening was, hey, we can think all these nice things, but what you do is who you are. And we have no black men or women in our company. And that's embarrassing. And that's not okay. And you know, you can't address what you don't acknowledge. So let's acknowledge it. Let's talk about it. Let's document it. And let's, let's start to try to try to change that. But we're, we're starting to say, okay, cool. We're, we're not where we want to be today. Here's a representation metric that we want to move toward. And how do we report internally to our team, up to our board and externally to the community around us that we are progressing in that direction? And like dismantling our unconscious biases and dismantling some, you know, systemic racism and the way people talk about just wanting the best candidate, um, which is a whole separate issue, but it's not the right thing. So how do we like dismantle those, talk about those safely along the way and make demonstrable progress quarter over quarter to be a more accurate representation of the, you know, a mirror to the community that we're a part of uh, and that we're building our business in? I mean, you mentioned this whole idea of virtue signaling. 
Right. And there are all these terms coming out of, uh, like you said, this appetite to cancel people where tough conversations are, are hard to have already, but they're even harder if there's a feeling that everything is a landmine and you really can't say anything, even if there's no malice behind it to really try to understand. Right. So there's there's a, a motives get imputed on people based on what they said, right or wrong at one point in their life or another. And this idea of virtue signaling is kind of feel which way the wind is blowing. And if it's blowing in this direction today and the prevailing winds are in that direction, that's where you are. But we know that that's not really your stand. If the prevailing winds were blowing in the other direction, we know you would be blowing in that direction as well. And so finding a real center that you come from and you can operate from and despite all the noise, be able to move forward. I think that's absolutely critical for the for the startup community. And I think Columbus, if we want to be a leading city, we have to get this right. We have to figure it out because the dynamics in terms of real population and a population that you can pull from, at least there's that 30% or so or much higher percentage of African-Americans, Black people in Columbus that you can pull from. Imagine in the cities where the the statistics are even wider, right? Where the populations, you can't really pull from that big a population. And so I think that's great. We, again, test city USA, we seem to find these mixes that just make sense for innovation and for moving forward in a real meaningful way. Now we've said all of this, now we got to get to loop, right? I complimented the brand, but we need to know the value proposition. You alluded to it, but Elevator pitch, what is Loop? More and more of the world is moving on online and COVID is only accelerating that. So, you know, retail by all estimates is going to be 30% less brick and mortar storefronts than we've seen historically. And, you know, a lot of that behavior is going to shift online long-term and is never going to come back. So if you think about the shortcomings of online commerce compared to, to retail, you know, I walk into a Nordstrom and I, I can try a shirt on, I can make sure it fits. And you, know, you buy online and you're taking a chance from a brand um, that you've never bought from before. And you know the first thing, statistically speaking, the first thing people are going to look at is whether or not they have free returns and free exchanges. And the second is whether or not they have free shipping. And so as more and more business shifts online, more and more returns are going to happen. And our flagship product effectively makes it really easy for consumers to return products to brands. And what we've been able to demonstrate is Historically, brands made it really hard to return stuff you buy online. You'd have to print out a PDF and send it to customer service and hope that you and ship your product back on your own dime. And you know, maybe a couple of weeks later, you you'd get a refund on your credit card or whatever the case may be. What we've been able to prove that is generally, or at least historically, counterintuitive, is that customers who have a great experience returning your product have a higher lifetime value and are more likely to buy from you again than a customer who's never returned a product. So if you take all customers who buy the first time and 20% of them return a product in apparel as a standard, first thing is every $1,000 you make, 200 of it's not really yours and it's going to come back in returns. And then the cost of a return is expensive, but won't, won't necessarily get into that. Shipping labels both ways. But you know, 20% of that money is going to come back out of your business right away. But what we've been actually able to demonstrate and see you know, across all of our merchants is that when a customer returns a product back the first time, they will come back and contribute more of your overall dollars. And we all, you know, we all know that it costs far less to retain a customer than it does to, to you know, win a new customer. You know, eventually, what we're seeing is we're able to shift the dialogue from just returning a product 
to actually, one, shifting refunds to exchanges. So getting a customer, you know, 30% of all returns happen because a consumer got the wrong size. And so we facilitate size exchanges, facilitate product exchanges, facilitate gift cards, and eventually make it easy to, to refund as well. And we're facilitating higher lifetime value and, and longer, uh, more meaningful relationships between brand and consumers is really where we're going. And as an example of what it actually is, you know, if you shop at Allbirds or Tommy John or Tacovas or Brooklyn and, and you buy a product and you don't like it and you scroll down to the footer like everybody does to look for returns and you click on returns, the experience that you have is with our product. So you enter your order number and your shipping zip code, and we pull in your order, and then we make it really easy and seamless for you to get the right product or get a refund and then ship your product back to the brand. And by taking that friction, reducing it, and making it easy for the merchant, what we're actually doing is you know, historically taking an experience that is very trust damaging, right? I bought a product from a brand that I thought was going to be one thing and it wasn't. So I'm disappointed as a consumer and my that brand's relationship with me is on the line. We've been able to take that and use it as an opportunity to strengthen the relationship and build a longer lasting relationship with the consumer uh, rather than turning it into what we kind of call internally a one and done customer. Okay. So now e-commerce world, I don't do as much online shopping. I'm actually a big fan of the in-store experience. So you're talking to that ideal customer for a retailer that they would like to convert to e-commerce because we're probably part of the problem stashing money away because we can't go outside and have experiences. So one of the things that would be great for me to get me to move over to do more of my shopping online would be free shipping. And like you said, free returns and exchanges, because I like to try clothes on. Mm -hmm. Now on inside baseball and e-commerce, are all of these large brands like your Tommy John that you mentioned, are they on Shopify or are they on their own platform? And was it because they built their own platform, they just couldn't get returns right? What was the issue with their existing system that they couldn't do as well what Loop offers them? Yep. Great question. So there are a couple of points in there. Retail in North America will finish this year somewhere between four and a half and five and a half trillion dollars. And e-commerce is before COVID was projected to be about 700 billion of that, and we'll now finish the year somewhere north of a trillion dollars of, of that. Um, so 20% of retail plus, maybe a, maybe a little bit more, of all U.S. retail is online. Shopify, as an example, is about 10% of that in North America. Amazon's about 35% of that, so just weigh those, weigh those things against each other. You know what Shopify has done pretty bril- pretty brilliantly, and so back to like the origin story with Ahmed, we were the sixth brand to launch on Shopify Plus before they were public. Uh, they launched at twenty five dollars a share and are now at nine hundred plus dollars a share. You know, I don't know their IPO valuation, but I know that in I know that when a little bit of a plug for Firstmark leading uh, Shopify Series A and Firstmark led Loop Series A, when Firstmark invested in Loop. We were a 20-ish million dollar company. When Firstmark invested in Shopify, Shopify was a 20-ish million dollar company. And they're now a $100 billion company about 12 years later, if I'm, if I'm getting my, my math right. So they've grown on that trajectory. And what they've been able to do so well, I, I'd kind of call it the Pareto principle of, of e-commerce. Toby says it as if most of our merchants need it most of the time, we're going to do it, which is, I think, by definition, Pareto's, Pareto's law. But they took what used to be a deterrent and, you know, there used to be a big 
moat around being able to develop a tech stack and invest hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in building the e-commerce infrastructure to sell online. And they basically commoditized that and made it almost free as whether you're an entrepreneur and you know Shopify has got a million plus brands on the platform or you're a $50 million business and Shopify has got a, a couple hundred of those and a, and a couple... Um, Shopify Plus is about almost 10,000 merchants probably today uh, and growing pretty rapidly. They've made it really easy to get what most brands need most of the time in a low total cost of ownership SaaS package with no internal infrastructure based on the cloud and brought that to the masses while consumer preference is shifting toward convenience. We're in an economy that's shifting from an ownership mindset to an access mindset. And they're just kind of right in the glide path of four or five of these macro level trends in commerce, which is how we all buy things. And uh, for better or worse, America is a consumer economy more than it is a producer economy. And so we're just in this glide path where Shopify, right place, right time, and really phenomenal execution. And then there is a whole ecosystem worth more money than I'm probably aware of, of companies building within the Shopify ecosystem, which is what we've chosen to do. So Shopify does most things for most of their merchants but you know they don't do customer reviews. Uh, they don't do subscriptions. They don't do returns. For a while, they didn't do installment payments, and, and they're slowly encroaching on more of that space. And so what we're trying to do is move really quickly, build a lot of trust, have a phenomenal product that's differentiated from anything Shopify can do that really takes care of our merchants and really takes care of our merchants' customers and then is you know differentiated from anything Shopify can offer in the future to make sure that we have uh, staying power, that we're sticky with those merchants. Okay, wonderful. So certainly, you know, people understand that Shopify is doing something right. And so even for a large brand, when you count the costs, you just, you know, Shopify works. And so a lot of your customers are choosing Shopify as their e-commerce platform. You're integrated into that. And so what you're trying to do is figure out how to make that return process as simple as possible And the value proposition then to the brand or to the retailer is that if we can get this right, that means, you know, maybe fewer returns and um, you will have better customer retention. Thank you for listening. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after this message from our sponsor. When companies large and small need to solve technological challenges, they turn to AWH. AWH has the experience and expertise to help your company create innovative and disruptive products for the web, mobile, and IoT. Leveraging a deep understanding of machine learning, artificial intelligence, and blockchain, combined with the creativity that comes from their entrepreneurial DNA, AWH gives their clients the competitive advantage. Visit awh.net today and tell them about your project. In terms of the product and how it's been deployed, what are you seeing in terms of that ratio and how are you guys working with your brands and your customers to help improve those metrics? Yeah, yeah, great stuff. And I'll I'll maybe summarize it in what we've been able to align on as our really our core value pillars against which we measure everything that we're going to distribute into the product. The first and where we're, you know, honestly, what we've been built on and why we've been successful is the consumer experience. So just what is the consumer's experience like with our product? 
The second, and it's a really big and important one for merchants and where we continue to invest. And if you ask me where e-commerce is going and what the software has got to do to win, it is enabling merchants to have more time, which, which I would summarize as automation. So consumer experience and then automation. And so automation of issuing the refund, automation of letting your warehouse know what products are coming back in what orders and making sure it's as easy for your warehouse or your 3PL partner to begin what we call the reverse logistics process as possible. The third value pillar that we build for that a lot of our merchants need is business intelligence focused. So how do we help make smarter merchandising, buying and planning decisions so that honestly, we're not just diminishing refunds over time, but that we're helping merchants diminish returns over time and helping more consumers get the right product the first time rather than needing to go through the, the return and exchange flow. And then the fourth is um, pretty simple. Um, it's unit economics. And so how do we save the merchant and the customer literally just dollars? A really simple example is, can we leverage our scale and the fact that we're processing 600,000 returns a month to get a $5 million or $2 million or $1 million brand better rates on their return labels than they can get today, or perhaps even better return rates than some merchants doing 100 or 200 or $300 million can get because of the, just the volume that we're processing and making sure that we can pass those savings on to our merchants and then, you know, reciprocally down into their, into their customers. You know, and if you just think of, call it a $100 million brand with a 20% return rate is $20 million in returns and a hundred, I'll get my math, we'll get off here, but a hundred dollars in order is I think 200,000 returns and 200,000 returns annually at $10 a label is $2 million a year in just shipping costs. And if we can take that from $10 a label to $5 a label, we just in our unit economics can save that merchant a million dollars in their business. And so that's the fourth pillar. And I probably gave it more airtime relative to the other three than it deserved, but it is a, the economics. And then if you, you know, trickle down and this is some of our belief about the, the future of commerce and, and, and vision and mission is there is just so much waste in e-commerce. If that's just the returns of a single merchant, imagine all the orders of a single merchant, and then imagine all the orders of a trillion dollars of e-commerce in North America, and then expand that to the rest of the world. And our cardboard usage and all of this stuff is just, it's phenomenally high. Merchants' carbon footprints are high. Um, and we're starting to see a lot of brands and a lot of platforms take their carbon footprint more seriously. And as we think about what the future holds and why Loop exists beyond just creating a returns experience, having an impact on that is kind of core to, to what we're trying to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, there's so many issues. Once you get into the labeling side, I mean, imagine smart labels, right? For not just the returns that for, for, for the items that make it, but for the items that the customer saying that they didn't get. And this, there's just this box that evaporated somewhere, right? Is there a role for the label to do more than just tell me where I'm going from point A to point B? Is there a role for the label to tell me where I am at any given point, right? Not on the truck but at any yep, physical location where that box moves to. So incredible stuff, man. So uh, now this is a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek question. Do you want to, I mean, are your uh, is the business model uh, on a per-return basis where you actually want to work with a sucky brand with a ton of returns because for every return you get paid? Or are you incented a little bit differently that you would want to work with a high quality brand that really values lowering returns and you, you can help them do that? 
Yeah, great, great question. The yeah, like the the obvious response to the tongue in cheek side of that is like we're fundamentally flawed if we are incentivized to keep your return volume high. So our pricing model it is based a little bit on kind of a combination of order volume, likelihood to return, and ultimately our ability to impact the business by diminishing refunds and or diminishing returns. And an example would be we can save a footwear brand a lot more money, and we can make a footwear brand a lot more money then we can make a cosmetics brand of the same size. Cosmetics return rates are, you know, one tenth of the size of footwear. So, you know, when a brand of the same size has fewer returns, we obviously need to be tethered to return volume, but we try really hard to keep that a second order consequence just to make sure that our incentive is to diminish return volume for merchants and diminish refunds and actually help them keep more dollars. And if you if you think about the term GMV, uh, gross merchandise volume, there's also a term that's less frequently used called net merchandise volume. That as we think about the future, we want to be evaluated and we want our merchants, our customers to judge us based on our ability to bring their net merchandise volume closer to their gross merchandise volume over time by helping diminish the percentage of that volume that they lose to, to refunds. So that's sort of a long-term pricing strategy where if we can unlock that and figure out the right way to demonstrate and deliver that value, we, we kind of become unstoppable. Well, incredible, man. I think absolutely fascinating, fascinating business. E-commerce really fascinates me. The future of retail moving away from brick and mortars, uh, mortar stores. I think you guys are rightly positioned. So what's next for Loop? Of course, you're broadening the spectrum of the services that you offer and the value proposition, but what's next for you over the next year or two years? Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for asking. And to go even back to like business school days, um, to, to simplify it, I kind of talk about it in like brand extension and line extension. So line extension would be like, hey, Loop has a returns platform and it works really great for some merchants. We think that more merchants need access to this product. So how can we make Loop returns available to more merchants? Because right now, the fact that we are limited to the, the customer set that we can sell to keeps our product that delivers a ton of value from, from being in the hands of a bunch of other great brands that we think need to be able to access it. So the line extension side of bringing returns to more merchants is part of the plan. And I think additionally, is I would call it brand extension. So what can Loop do above and beyond returns? What is, what is Loop's next act, our second act after returns? And with the customer empathy we've built and with the great product market fit that we have and the great distribution we have, what are we uniquely and especially positioned to do because of that that will benefit the merchants that we're already working with and serve them in ways that are more than returns? So without maybe giving too much away, that's kind of the, the two ways that we're thinking about the future. Gotcha, man. Now, um, with all that you've experienced in business so far, and this is my last question and we'll wrap, if you could go back and do it all over again, What's maybe one thing, one word of advice you would give to your younger self about building businesses the right way? Um, so the, the statement is, um, I think, a Ben Horowitz book that is um, what you do is who you are. And, you know, when you were talking like virtue signaling earlier, it's it's one thing to believe something. It's another thing to act on that belief. And I think that word for me is conviction. A belief plus conviction equals action. And a belief without conviction falls short. And I think I spent far too much of my early-ish career, maybe I'm still early career, but I spent far too long believing things and then not following through on them and then not really exploring why there was a gap between my beliefs and my, my follow-through. And that 
created, you know, accountability issues and I think kept me from being able to move as quickly into opportunities. And honestly, to be a leader, you've got to have people following you. It, It cost me a lot of trust over time where if you don't have the conviction for something, you may as well not even say it because if you're not going to do it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah, man, I completely agree with that. And in some cases, it's hard for an entrepreneur to do that. You know, I wrap every episode with my final thought. And I've been pulling on this thread throughout the conversation. And you mentioned how incredibly hard it is for you to be a solo founder. And I think you have the great fortune of having had co-founders that actually let you explore multiple ideas with the understanding, even you had that understanding, you had no illusions about the fact that, yeah, running one business is hard, running two businesses is exponentially harder, but I'm able to flow between ideas because I have the backup of my co-founders. And so for any young entrepreneur out there, maybe you're struggling as a solo founder, um, and, and you're you're thinking about, but maybe because you feel like I have to give up a piece of my company to get the right co-founder, whatever, the benefits, if you pick the right person, far, far, far outweigh the potential pitfalls. You just have to choose rightly, and you have to have that person you know will support you. Thank you for joining me on another episode. Peace. That's a wrap. You can find this in all our episodes on our website, 614startups.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and all your favorite podcasting platforms. Don't forget to subscribe and write a review. If you would like updates sent to your inbox, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter on the website. To engage in the 614 Startups community, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at 614 Startups to join the conversation. For sponsorship opportunities and collaborations, email us at info at 614startups.com. It takes a village to do a podcast, and I would like to say a special thank you to my friends at Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to enhance the production of 614 Startups, and we're so happy with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in sonic branding, songwriting, and music production for companies and creatives. To learn more about them, go to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com.